and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Diggins! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am recording from the parking lot of the Bozeman Public Library. And for all of you stalkers in Bozeman who uh, want to come mess with my recording, I will be gone by the time you hear this. So I'm sorry. Um, and I'm recording recording on Wednesday afternoon because I'm going to be back driving tomorrow. And in a pinch. We had the one of another of our great break glass in case of punditry uh, guests. Uh, we have the lovely and talented A.B. Stoddard returning. A.B., thank you so much for, for doing this and being here. I only agreed to be here because you're in a parking lot in Bozeman. But <laughs> don't try to ever invite me back unless you plan to be there again. How about this? I can promise there'll be many more podcasts from strange and exotic places. I can't promise they'll always be the parking lot in the Bozeman Public Library. <laughs> But it is an honor and a pleasure, Jonah. Thank you. You, you would love it here because um, the Bozeman Public Library abuts one of the several many public parks around here, and it is a major dog trail. So I've been sitting here writing the G file um, and preparing, you know, with all the copious preparation I always do for these podcasts, um, while watching one car after another pull up and various dogs disgorge from them and frolic around in the snow. So it's, it's, it's actually been quite lovely. Don't tell the girls they're locked at the hotel, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're in the hotel and, um, but they've had a good time. I mean, um, the San Juan, if let's put it this way, if, I, I think I said this on the other podcast, but if, if English Springer Spaniels had suicide bombers, um, the San Juan islands would be the promised paradise that they would get in the afterlife. It is, it is perfect in every way um, for dogs and, and really just a lovely place, even though it's full of COVID hysteria, um, that makes probably Tacoma park look like, um, Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty intense. Um, like masks everywhere and dirty looks if you don't have masks and don't care if you're vaccinated and yada, yada. Washington states like that. We had my nephew, my, my, one of my sisters-in-law brought her family. They were on the way home. They went through Seattle. And they had to drive out of town to find a restaurant that would seat them because one of her kids wasn't vaccinated. Um, so it's, it's, there's intensely blue pockets are full of that stuff still in America, not just in Washington and New York. So they so. check the vax card at all the restaurants in Seattle, apparently. Yeah. So um, no one will check mine at the restaurants I go to here in Maryland. Yeah. I sometimes feel like, you know, like, you know how you want them to check your ID when you're buying booze? You know, like, validate me. Uh, <laughs> I want them to ask for my vaccine card every now and then. But, but not to tell you that your, your unvaccinated kid can't come to dinner with you. On, on the flip side, he should have been vaccinated. So, I mean, I, you know, the, and he got vaccinated because of that experience. So it, it's, it's a positive story all in all. Um, all right. So, like, like, where should we begin with the rank punditry? Um, um, it's, it's a target rich environment these days. Um, and you have a piece, we'll put them all in the show notes, but you have a piece, um, at real clear politics where you are, what, what is your title there? I mean, you're just one of these people who I don't care what your title is. You're just A.B. Stoddard, which is 
It's it's associate editor and columnist. Okay, yeah, but you you put words on screens over there. And um, about how the Democratic Party is poised for potentially a crack-up, and which is profoundly ironic. It's kind of like, um, sort of like the Tom Wolf thing about how everyone's uh, always worried in America about the, you know, the iron curtain of fascism descending and it always falls in Europe. We've been talking about the Republican crack up for my, my entire life. And um, all of a sudden it's materializing, you know, among Democrats that maybe they're the ones who are going to crack up. So why don't you sort of make your case? Well, what's interesting is that there was this period for Republicans in the wasteland of the Obama years where we said, you know, there's this leaderless party that was just hijacked by a leaderless movement, the Tea Party. And we talked, you know, extensively, you and I probably did together uh, around the table, you know, on special report about it hundreds of times. And it was, it, you know, we just beat that drum and, and how will they come together and figure it out? And of course, there are always these surprises, right? Because I do recall in 2015, you know, the rapturous way that our dear friend Charles Krauthammer would talk about the 2016 bench. It was going to be the greatest thing ever. Um, it's hard for people to remember that, but it was, you know, uh, hopefully Mitch Daniels and Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and all these, you know, wonderful people and heady policy geniuses that were devoted to uh, the right um, direction for the party. And, and, to look at the Democratic Party in control of all three branches of government with a party leader or two and know that there's a strong likelihood, as you and Starwalt discussed, that Biden doesn't run again. Kamala Harris is not considered by anybody in the Democratic Party establishment to be a next in line. And more importantly than both of them, Nancy Pelosi is going to leave. Right. Nancy Pelosi is, you know, is basically Mitch McConnell. She is, she doesn't make mistakes. She knows where the bodies are buried. That's the cliche we always go to. She is, you know, she's just a super shrewd institutional tactician. And without which the Democratic Party would have banged its head against the wall repeatedly uh, these last um, cycles. And the idea of her, as you head into this terrible midterm where they're going to lose the House and they're probably going to lose the Senate. There's a 75% chance the Republicans take the Senate, but the most likely outcome is a two to three seat gain. They only have to remember to win control, win one. And so the idea of Nancy Pelosi leaving, she doesn't want to announce it now because she's trying to keep raising money for the party that's about to, you know, drive into a wall um, an election day of 2022. But she's she's really likely going to step down. And there's not the, the heir apparent is supposed to be Hakeem Jeffries. And you and I have talked about that in the past that, you know, now he's um, formed a super PAC with Josh Gottheimer, you know, the, the key centrists in the House and the enemy of all progressives in this country um, because they have to fend off uh, crazy left-wing challenges in primaries to incumbents. Who, some of whom are in the Congressional Black Caucus. So, and, and so the, it's not clear who steps in. There's been this kind of off-the-record conversation about, you know, do you put Clyburn in with Steny Hoyer as a placeholder for two years? It's very destabilizing. You're going to be talking about January of 2023 when Joe Biden is going to be impeached by a Republican House. Everybody can count on that. You can count on anything 
in the next few years. You can count on that. And the idea, and then you're sort of heading into this lame duck of Joe Biden with in in the minority in the House, probably in the minority in the Senate, being impeached, and then the whole party facing an open primary where the progressives are going to, you know, rear their head again. It's not likely a candidate would be Senator Warren or Senator Sanders, but, you know, they're going to have a placeholder too. They're, they're going to, you know, raise the flag. And, and it's just, um, it's just, if you look at the intra-party divisions that they're suffering through now, and you think about, okay, the next few months, you know, they're, they're literally, the party's going to start to blow to bits. It's, um, no one's really talking about it, but the Pelosi factor is a huge part of that. Um, and and the fact that the that the the president, this has happened, I think, since you and I last spoke. Because I think when we last spoke, like something terrible was happening in Kabul. And but I mean, at that time, Joe Biden had not gone two times to the Hill to to, to like ostensibly ask for the support from the Democratic Caucus, only to leave without asking for it, and essentially rolling Nancy Pelosi which is unheard of, but the president did it two times, weakening not only her, but himself. It's just, it's just amazing what's happening to the party. And it's like, no one can deal with it. And they're not talking. I mean, they are behind closed doors, but nothing's really moving. And it's literally about to blow up. So, I mean, I want to push back a little bit on the Nancy Pelosi stuff, but um, just because I, I, I think she's really good. How to put this? She's really good at managing the dysfunctional nature of what's happened to Congress insofar as, you know, this isn't her fault. The, you know, we, when was the last time we had regular order? Was it 20 years ago, 25 years ago, right? And Before we were born. Right, yeah, basically. And, um, and the, so the, the, the way it's supposed to work, and we, I talk about this as Starwald, I talk about this all the time, is like, if you watch a Schoolhouse Rock video about how a bill becomes a law, if that was your, if you did your homework for a politics class that was actually rigorous about the way Congress actually works right now, you'd fail. Because it's, it's all done by leadership. And, you know, and Paul Ryan was part of this trend. I mean, this, and, and Boehner was part of this trend, although I think he pushed back against it more than Ryan or Pelosi had, but still of you don't go, what was it? The Boehner rule that says you can't, you don't bring something up unless a majority of your own caucus believes, you know, will support it. It was he who shall not be named Dennis Haster. That's right. That's right. Um, and, um, uh, and I, you know, and I get a majority, you know, want that a majority of your caucus should be in favor of Republican legislation brought to the floor. There's a certain superficial, logic to that. But the problem with that is that it's gone from just being a majority of the caucus to being the whole caucus, right? Because it's got to be, everything's done party line vote. And, and so Pelosi has been very adept at, at running her caucus, um, efficiently and counting votes in her caucus. But, you know, with the exception of getting those like eight Republicans, which I do think was a smart move, was a clever move on her part to vote for the infrastructure thing. You know, she basically has been a partisan speaker. And I, I don't know, how, you know, I, I can make some arguments about like how she handled impeachment or, um, or I should say impeachments 
or even, you know, the recent censure over uh, Paul Gosar, you know, the way that resolution was written, you were basically asking Republicans to vote to censure the Republican leadership and the Republican Party, not just Paul Gosar. And that almost guaranteed that it was that a lot of Republicans who have probably despised Gosar couldn't vote for it. Now, I don't know if they would have voted for a cleaner version, but it seems to me that she, by always concentrating on maximization of democratic power rather than on the proper running of the House, has been part of that larger problem. But anyway, you can respond to that if you want. But the the, the question I, I wanted to get to also was that, um, what is your theory about, like, as, as listeners of this podcast are sick of me saying, it seems often that both parties are determined to be minority parties. And, you know, right now, Joe Manchin is essentially in the sweet spot of where most Americans are. They're okay with spending if it's on reasonable stuff that they think is reasonable, but they don't like, you know, Latinx and they don't like, you know, the crazy progressive stuff. Um, and they don't like the crazy right wing, you know, secessionist, Trumpy, you know, Thomas Massey nonsense either. And it feels to me like, like, like it's about like, I mean, I think that's objectively true and I doubt you disagree with that in broad brushstrokes, but what is your explanation for the structural inability of the democratic party to be more Clintonian of like morphing to, you know, the thing about Clinton, which I, I hate being put in a position of speaking admirably about him, but when he saw that the American people were going a different way, he went with them, right? He threw his principles on the side and just sort of triangulated and had Dick Morris come in and take polls about where he should go on vacation and all. You want to go to Martha's Vineyard. But instead he went to, you know, what was it? Yellowstone or something like that because that polled better as an American vacation. Um, Rahm Emanuel used to like go find moderate or conservative Democrats to run in moderate or conservative districts on the bizarre theory that putting up AOC types to run in purplish or reddish districts was just bad politics. What is the structural reason why the Democratic Party seems incapable of doing this, even though when you talk to actual Democrats, they kind of know what the smart thing to do is. They're like Al Pacino in Scent of a Woman. They keep coming to the crossroads and they know the right path and they don't take it. What? what I know I have a good sense of why the Republican Party can't do it, but what is the explanation in your mind for why the Democratic Party seems incapable of doing it. Well, I'm going to start with Pelosi. I, 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 I was not um, uh, complimenting her as a, a, a productive speaker for the House of Representatives and the preservation of the institution and its norms and um, and the hope of it functioning again as a problem-solving legislative body. That's, that's okay, that ship has sailed. Um, I was talking about the Democratic family is like, in there's like crazy people in the closet and the attic and people are old and passed out in the park lounger and other people are drunk and people have wandered off into the night and they're not coming back and they literally like don't they're not going to have enough enough heads in the game um to to get them through a very rocky time that's what that's what i'm saying and if i were her i'd feel very badly right now about leaving at this time, there's no longer like an opportunity for her to leave on an upswing. It's do you leave after, do you A, try to help them mitigate the losses, but then run out the door when they're in, really in the crapper? Like that's when, when you're one of the only people who can dig straight in the party. So that's, that's what I'm saying. But on to your next, which is, you know, that's the eternal question. I mean, the, 
the I think the party was spooked in 2016 by the strength of Bernie Sanders. And yeah. so they kind of fell back in love and they were emboldened by picking up new voters in 2018. And so instead of going for the coalition, uh, broadening the coalition and kind of coming back to Bill Clinton and the voters who supported Obama and then Donald Trump, they said, wait a minute, we have all these new pissed off white women with college degrees and they're super liberal and we're going to totally mobilize young and non-white voters too. And then like we have the numbers and we're just going to really give up on like Nancy normal in the Midwest who like really can't abide Donald Trump, but might, you know, used to vote Republican and might again. No, no, she, we're going to like, we're not going to have to deal with her anymore. We're not going to have to deal with her or her husband or her sons. Like we're just, we have a new coalition. We're just, you know, because the turnout 18 was freaking crazy. And a lot of them were voters who hadn't voted for a really long time or new voters. And they got really eddy about, um, how they had sort of enough and they could, instead of going with persuasion, it would stick with mobilization and look at Bernie Sanders. I mean, he just shocked all of us. And I think he really shocked the democratic party and Hillary Clinton and, and the Clintons and the Obamas and Joe Biden. And all of a sudden you have this, you know, it, it, it bore out in, in 2020 that, that, that Bernie Sanders actually doesn't mobilize a broad enough coalition. And Joe Biden did. But you know what? He almost didn't. And Bernie Sanders almost derailed him. And it came really close. And but for Jim Clyburn. And it was like pretty bad. I mean, in terms of how divided the party is. So you and I know, and David Shore knows, and everyone who, you know, grinds into the minutiae, that if you look at polling from like Navigator and places that the White House looks, you can see that the party is, you know, as we all say, not Twitter. And most of the party really is moderate to center and wants the party to stay left of I mean, center left. And that the base voters really like older black voters who are not woke and all this stuff. But they believe that the energy and the fundraising and all of the Twitter excitement um, is, is and that crowd, even though as I've, you know, in my grumpy old lady way have said a million times, don't show up in midterms and they didn't in 10 and they didn't in 14 and they're not going to in 22, and Biden knows that, like they still think that they have to cling to this. You know, we can say they're stupid, but so are Republicans who are willing to like talk like seditionists to make their voters happy because they're afraid of Donald Trump. Both parties have been completely hijacked um, by the extremists in their base. You could make an argument, and I don't mean this as a criticism of Obama, but you can make an argument that Obama's victory in 2008 did enormous damage to both parties because it changed the paradigm, right? He, he actually succeeded in turning up the gain of base vote of not just base voters, but new voters. Um, you know, everyone was like, when is he going to pivot to the center? And he never did because they'd figured it out that the first black president, charismatic, whatever, so long as he wasn't too hostile to sort of evangelical voters and was willing, you know, and he spoke much more conservative about that kind of stuff when he ran in 2008. But that whole, we are the ones we've been waiting for, turn up, young, disaffected, first time voters, 
and um, change the racial composition of the electorate, everybody took from that this lesson that there are all of these untapped voters that we should gear all our energies to. And remember, Ted Cruz had that strategy. He had this theory that there were 10 million, you know, the equivalent of 10 million white voters, you know, on the right who'd never voted. And he, he may have been right because Donald Trump inadvertently took that strategy and won with it in 2016. I mean, he picked the lock of the Electoral College, but he turned out a lot of those kinds of voters, including a lot of Bernie voters. But the, the weird thing is, and I remember we probably talked about this a bunch back then, but the weird thing is um, in, in 2016 and, I mean, not 2016, in 2020 in the Democratic primaries, they, like all, virtually all of the Democratic candidates, except for Buttigieg for about five minutes and Klobuchar for about three minutes and, and Biden in South Carolina, all of them were all running for the Bernie Sanders lane, which was weird because Bernie Sanders didn't win the nomination in 2016. And you would think that someone would say, hey, you know, rather than go for the voters of the guy who lost in 2016, who happens to be running again in 2020, maybe go for the voters that aren't, that, that Bernie Sanders can't get. And there, it was weird how everybody in the Democratic Party seemed to think, you know, and there were different slices of it. Elizabeth Warren had the sort of, uh, you know, the sort of upscale Cambridge Chablis socialists. And Bernie Sanders had the, the downscale sort of union hall socialists. But um, there aren't enough socialists to, like, do it for you if you've got a bunch of socialists running as socialists. And it was just very strange to me that nobody who had any real political heft, I mean, there was that, what was the guy from Colorado or something? But, like, there was, there was nobody who was running as a centrist Democrat until Biden kind of, like, convinced people, oh, no, that's actually me. And it's, it was a weird misreading of the tea leaves. Yes. Um, and I, I think that for Biden, he, he just, you could see him through that process. You know, people begged him to run. So he's been Obama's vice president. We have Donald Trump. And, you know, it's clear that Bernie's going to run again, but that Hillary Clinton has been put out to pasture. And then there's all these like young who knows who's and, you know, Bernie and Elizabeth. And so people say to him, you have to run, you have to run, you know, you, you have to save this country from Donald Trump. And then he gets in and we watched, you know, those debates. He just watched like, this is the democratic party. They're coming. I mean, they're just coming at him. Um, Eric Swalwell tells him that he's like an old man and it's time to hang it up. And <laughs> you know, one of the Castro brothers, and it's like a total progressive, you know, circus. All, remember all those votes they took? prisoners get every freaking right voting while you're in prison, you know, every kind of health insurance, if you're illegal. I mean, Kamala Harris called him a racist for opposing busing. Remember? <laughs> and the Kamala Harris moment was really, I think the worst of all of them. Yeah. And, and so you kind of watched him being like lashed about thinking like this party has left me. And I think he, you know, he was pretty at some point convinced he was going to lose you know, the nominate, the nominating contest. And then he was rescued. But um, it is, it is really strange um, where, where the, the party wanted to compete away from Donald Trump's territory. 
and not try to win those people over. And they wrote them off as members of a cult and they're unpersuadable. And so they think, again, that they can always awaken a crowd of new voters. And you and Senator Sass have talked about this. Like, we can't just assume that people, there are the politically addicted and then there are the rest of us. And these people literally vote on gas prices. Like, they don't know how well the vaccine distribution program went in, you know, in the, in the spring. They don't even know that they got checks from the government. They're just really mad about gas prices. And so they don't watch the news and Biden's in the toilet and, and they don't know that what happened on January 6th. And that is, you know, you put it at the time, Trump actually didn't try to decertify election or overturn election. He tried to steal one. I mean, most Americans are just going on with their life and they're thinking, well, the gas prices were certainly better 18 months ago, even in a pandemic. So, so the idea that you can just arouse these new voters, the politically addicted in the Democratic Party are angry because they're not getting enough progressive stuff. And then you've got these people that, you, you know, how are you going to bring them to the table? These lapsed voters or never, you know, before voters. I mean, how are you going to energize them? If they don't, they don't inform themselves because they have a life and they're not into this. The best example of this, I think, um, is the uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, where you know I remember writing at the time. You know, there's a difference between depth of feeling and uh, breadth of feeling, right? So, like, if you polled Americans and said, "Do you want to leave Afghanistan?" You know, pretty much everybody. I want to leave Afghanistan. Who doesn't want to leave Afghanistan, right? You know, um, but they didn't, like if you actually did a more accurate poll or focus group that said, do you want to leave Afghanistan in such a way that the Taliban wins and we lose and we look like fools and America is in a worse place because of it? Or do you want to keep a few thousand troops there and perpetuate a bad situation until things get better? You would not find this overwhelming support for withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think Biden, in part because he had these grudges from the Obama administration about Afghanistan, but Biden thought that because it was a 70-30 issue, that it wouldn't matter how you did it. And turns out that a lot of Americans don't like losing wars. I mean, they may not have wanted to be in it, but they didn't like losing it. And they didn't like being embarrassed about it. And it undermined that sense of like, oh, this guy knows what he's doing in a way that for normal, like normal Americans, you're right. You know, they're not glued to TV. You know, I always like to point out that, you know, our friend, I use advisedly, Tucker Carlson, you know, is the highest rated guy on cable news. Um, on a good night, he gets three and a half million votes, which means 329 million people aren't watching. Um, and, and, you know, most people aren't invested in this stuff in that way, but they they're invested in gas prices. They're invested in like these sort of old fashioned notions of national honor that say it sucks to lose a war when you didn't need to. And it really sucks to lose a war in an embarrassing way. And it doesn't speak to Americans views about foreign policy. It speaks to something just sort of much more basic. It, it is so true. I, I think that you're right that Biden assumed not only from, you know, his priors about it, but that that, that, that Trump had also sold the American people on the policy of withdrawal. And he was like, this is just going to be what we have to do. And, you know, he had thought a lot about the fact that you, it's always going to be messy when you, you know, you've got to airlift out of there or whatever. But the, I, the, 
anyone who isn't, again, in, ingesting political news is going to see someone falling to their death off of an airplane. And it's, and it's true that once you lose the veneer of competence, you, it, how do you get it back? I mean, he'd, he'd started, he, if the vaccine program had, had happened right after that, and we had something really new that made us feel normal and good, but it had already happened. And so we were feeling really ebullient in May and June, then Afghanistan comes, then he doesn't pass the infrastructure bill and his polls start to tank as they get into a huge democratic family fight. And you can't, you can't get that back um, just as he can't get the um, sort of the capacity uh, confidence back. So you see in polling now, that people think that he can't run again because he's too old. Well, he just turned 79 two weeks ago. Next year, he'll turn 80. You don't really reverse those numbers. I mean, if he had done, I guess, a lot more back and forth in the public with reporters or more uh, sort of off-the-cuff stuff with voters, um, you know, you go fly to Michigan and talk about infrastructure, and then you actually, like, have real, you know, exchanges or whatever, and he'd given the impression he was super with it or whatever. But it would take such an effort for him now to expend all this energy to try to convince people of his capacity. And so those things, it's just so hard to get the competence and the capacity, you know, those numbers up again uh, once you flop. No, th- I mean, you had those numbers, the polling numbers in, in your one of your pieces, and it's really kind of striking. And, you know, there was a time when people tried to say, oh, criticism of Biden is ageist. And the, the problem is, is that this is another one of these things like gas prices. Everyone is an expert or not just gas prices, prices. When you try to tell people that there's no inflation, like, you know, you can have experts on all sorts of things that, you know, let's put it this way. Lots of Americans aren't expert on a lot of things. It's not no strike against them, but they are experts on like the money in their wallets and their pocketbooks, right? I mean, they, they, they know what groceries are supposed to cost. And when they're 40% higher or whatever it is, trying to tell them, you know, don't believe your lying eyes, it just doesn't work. And same thing with like with the Afghanistan thing, trying to spin that as some great success, it just doesn't work. And and the same thing with like his cognitive ability. I don't think he's like, you know, I think right-wingers go way too far, dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, all these kinds of things. But um, at the same time, Virtually everybody is an expert on what it looks like when their loved ones start to get old. And it's more pronounced in some old people than in other old people. And so, like, no one says this kind of thing about Bernie Sanders because he's still, you know, he's still got, you know, whatever it is that Bolshevism does to your neurons, he's just still in good shape. But, and, you know, and like, what's his name? Um, who is the, the, the defense secretary? Rumsfeld. Like, Rumsfeld, an old dude. But that guy had a memory like a steel trap. And so no one said, oh, he's out of it, you know, and that kind of thing. And so you can spin all you want. But then when you see at a press conference, Biden forgetting names, saying strange things, losing his train of thought, people recognize that because they've seen it in their own lives. And bumper stickers and spin can't erase it. They can't, you know, you can't make a new first impression. And the impression that Biden gives is one that is like now, I think, baked in. And barring some medical breakthroughs, you're right, you can't really reverse it. Well, what I would say if if I was like a member of his family, like being as fair as anyone could be about this, is 
a lot of Americans probably think he can do the job right now just fine and he doesn't have dementia and he might not want to have long press conferences and he might need a nap every day, but he's actually fine to do the job. But a second term is a different story. Sure. Right. Right. You really start once you get into 82, 81. I mean, no, that's like it, it just at that point, it's really hard to to imagine and rationalize. So, yeah, and this is, I mean, again, this is a point Sardal and I talked about, about how unbelievably deadly it is to send the signal that you're not going to run again. Because once you do, every ambitious politician, you know, the, the general rule in our life is that virtually every senator wants to be president, with the exception of Mitch McConnell, right? And certainly every senator under the age of 55 wants to be president. And a lot of governors... A lot of congressmen, a lot of movie stars, and it's chum in the water. It says all of a sudden, I need to be like branding myself, differentiating myself, providing, saying that I'm an alternative to Biden and Harris and that kind of thing. And it makes it just much more difficult to implement an agenda where people sense a, a potential power vacuum coming down the pike. You know, like when you read histories of Europe and, and you know, monarchies, the the importance of an heir is like hugely important to the regime <laughs> because if you don't have certainty about an heir, then all of a sudden you have political forces trying to fill that vacuum and seize the opportunity. And, and I, I think it's going to bedevil the Biden administration because at some point people are just going to say, this is just BS. Like even if it's true that he's going to run again, the party and the voters aren't going to want him to run again and they're going to look for somebody else. And then, then you have a real free for all. And that's the problem is they're expecting, I mean, an in, you know, the, the establishment is expecting an open primary, but they can't talk about it openly. So all these machinations have to take place behind the scenes and no one can be bold enough to actually be aggressive and upset the apple cart. And it all has to be, um, it, 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 like you said, it, it, you can't have it be out in the open with full knives out. And so how do you do it? sort of subtly and, and sneakily, how do you approach, how does Joe Biden approach this? Does he prefer that Pete Buttigieg be well positioned and he stays neutral so that Pete Buttigieg can, I mean, those are really difficult issues. And, and, um, and it's going to be, again, not at a time when the party's riding high when they're in real, you know, they're going to lose power in, in the legislature and, and, and they're going to lose you know, people like Nancy Pelosi, and it's just going to be, it's going to be, it's, it's, it's truly unbelievable. Um, like I said, I, I just, I can't believe that, um, that, that it's coming so soon. I mean, it's not even a year since yeah. he was inaugurated and they, um, you know, they, they just, I, I they, they have to figure out the direction of the party. And then, I mean, the smart thing to do would be that, figure out the direction of the party and then try to maneuver about who fills the leadership positions. Um, but they're not going to do that. They're going to, they're, it's going to, someone's going to fill the vacuum kind of behind the scenes and position themselves. And, you know, the, the big, um, you know, the, the party stalwarts will weigh in and then they'll just have to sort of go for it. And, and that's, um, against obviously a lot of tension from whatever other wing is, is, you know, opposed, but, but it's, it, it's just a, um, and how sort of how much Biden separates himself from this process 
and just tries to like do his job and just sort of go into the sunlight. You know, it's really, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be something and, and it's going to be a huge distraction and, and, and it's going to be a huge opening and a vacuum for the opposition party. Um, and, um, and it's here. All right. So I don't normally, I'm not, I'm not famous for my flamenco dancing, but I'm also not famous for uh, providing glimmers of hope to the democratic party. But, um, there is this scenario where, yeah, I, th- I think it is barring some or unforeseen event. It's insane to think that Republicans don't take back the house at the least. Right. And, um, and, uh, who knows about the Senate? We can talk about that if you want, but like, you know, Republicans are going to take back the house. And that could in many ways be an enormous, I mean, it would be demoralizing for Democrats to be sure, but it, it also could be just a huge opportunity for Democrats because the way the Republicans are going to run the house, there's a very high probability. It will be an unbelievable clown show. I mean, Matt Gates gave a press conference the other day saying how, when we're in charge, we're going to have real oversight. Not like you had with Paul Ryan and, and Trey Gowdy. It's going to be people like me and Marjorie Taylor green and you know, all these people. And I, I just think it's just axiomatically. Oh, and, and, um, and Jim Jordan, right. I think it's axiomatically true that if Gates is right about that, presumably he doesn't, he's not, you know, in jail. Um, uh, that could be really bad marketing for the Republican party, particularly if like there's a whole blood feud, like Trump decides to screw Kevin McCarthy, um, and not let him be speaker. Um, and so in some, in some ways, the sort of the dynamics of 2018 that created this positive thing for Democrats the Republicans could so beclown themselves that, again, more most people seem to vote against the other party than for their own party. Um, it could actually be good for Biden, where Biden's like Biden's boring, Biden's grandpa boring, and if you got you know got, you know Tom, you know Massey bringing you know AK forty sevens onto the floor of the House and firing them off like it's a Afghan wedding, um, that could be great for the Democratic Party. Yeah, well, I agree, and you know Obama. One in 12 uh, after, you know, after uh, losing 65 seats or whatever it was, uh, you know, two years before. The Republicans are going to win the House because a great night for Democrats would be to lose like 12 seats and they only have a three vote margin. So um, so the historical average since World War Two is 27. You know, Obama loses 60. Clinton loses 50. They're going to lose. I mean, you know, they're, they're going to lose the house, but I agree with you. There's no question that it's going to be a hellscape. Uh, the, the, and it's not if Trump messes around with McCarthy when he does, and there's going to, he's going to enjoy the two or three weeks of people thinking that he might be speaker. Then he's going to say, no, thank you. But he's going to really do a lot of like Hannity and Levin interviews about it. And dangle, dangle, maybe he's this, maybe that. And and Kevin McCarthy is gonna have to eat so much shit, it's gonna be it's gonna be everything he deserves. But anyway, um, then they will impeach Biden. And yeah, we were all <laughs> looking very much forward to the go start green, go Mert Gates um, um thinking 
thinking brain trust that's going to run the House GOP conference, um, it, it will redound in some way some benefits for Democrats, but it really depends on, on what is happening in an open primary to the Democratic Party and what kinds of things people are promising at those debates <laughs> for illegal um, immigrants or prisoners or, you know, God knows what they'll be saying. Um, if Biden was a normal incumbent and was running again, I think it would help him, but I don't think he's going to run again. Yeah. So, um, I, I feel like I haven't gotten nearly the praise and, um, and congratulations for my restraint that I feel I deserve because as you know, we've talked about this many times. Um, my, one of, one of my central indictments, I've got like three or four of Congress is that it is transforming into basic what I call parliament of pundits, where people want to be basically fixtures of cable news and and own the libs and you know Mazen Cawthorn not wanting to hire anybody to his legislation. He only wants people to do like you know posting and and com stuff. And you've got um, you know Matt Gates who you know. For all I know, is functionally illiterate, but he certainly is not a legislator. Legislator, right? and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's she's moderated, she doesn't talk about Jewish space lasers as much, but um, you know, and the the you know the my sort of poster boy for this phenomenon was always um, Jason Chaffetz, who gave up a seat in Congress so he could be a pundit on Fox News, you know, which is not how it's supposed to work. Like, like. It's that's the though for most of our lives, the rungs of the ladder were in the opposite order. And um, and so the thing I feel like I deserve more congratulations for is not going like a like a sprinkler system of I told you so's about Devin Nunes quitting his seat to run Donald Trump's I predict craptacular social media company, which is just it is. It is like uh, is. It is a plot development out of a Chris Buckley satire. You know, where like a guy who was going, who was as had good a chance as anybody of fulfilling what was once his dream of running the Ways and Means Committee, the most powerful committee historically. You know, Dan Rostenkowski's fiefdom, so that he could run Donald Trump's social media company, and he has no experience running social media company or anything like it. It is so on the nose. It's just spectacular. I mean, it's depressing as hell. Um, but I mean, anyway, I'm sorry. I just, I had to get that out there as, as a sort of point of personal privilege. Do you have any insight about this that like, doesn't make it as absurd as it seems? Well, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the idea, I know that though Congress is dysfunctional and though it's been, as you noted, earlier centralized for the speaker's office for a really long time. And when you're, when you're chair of the ways and means committee, like Kevin Brady was, you don't get to write the tax bill. You know, that's not what happens, but it's totally bananas that he would give up the ways and means chairmanship in a year when they are going to win and he is going to be chairman. And he bested Vern Buchanan, who actually probably knows a lot more about tax policy and trade than he does. Um, this is insane, but apparently his district could be redrawn to make it a little bit harder for him to run. 
Um, but I also just putting that aside, which would make a lot more sense. I just think Devin Nunes thinks it's really cool to take a job. He has no like actual skills set for on the day that we learn that it's like the company's under federal investigation, because that's just, you know, that's, that's so Devin Nunes. <laughs> and, and, um, and they just think this kind of thing is, um, I don't know, funner than being like a serious person anymore. Um, and someone's probably blown a lot of kisses in his ears about how much money he's going to make. And he probably sadly believed them. Yeah. I mean, I, look, I used to be pretty friendly with, with, with Devin Nunes before the fall. I remember. <laughs> and, um, and he actually could geek out pretty hardcore on tax policy stuff. And he, and people forget he was a Boehner guy back in the day. You know, he was defending Boehner against like the Freedom Caucus people and all that kind of thing. And now he's lapped the Freedom Caucus people on the crazy stuff. But I mean, I guess, I guess the question is like, I have a mutual, I have a friend who's friendly with him and he thinks it's the money thing. He's got kids and it's Trump's probably promising him a lot of money. Um, I got, I know other people who think it's that he's addicted to being famous and that's it. Do you have a theory about like what the, what the core motivation is? No, because I think he lost his mind. Yeah. Okay. Years ago. I mean, he was, remember he was Ubering to the white house to come back to talk about, I mean, he, you know, he, the guy is like out of a Saturday Night Live skit. I mean, I, I think, you know, and, and many people describe this transformation the way you have. I mean, members of Congress have said this to me. Like, Devin used to be normal. We don't know what happened to him. Um, but I don't know how much he knows about, you know, ways and means policy jurisdiction. But uh, what I, this way. I, I, can more about I can tell you there was some concern um, about the idea that of all the people um, that were going to run this committee, it would be Devin Nunes. I, I, I think that he... I think something's happened to him and, and I, and I don't, I think, you know, he's not the only one and we've, you know, we've all watched a lot of morphing over the Trump years. And um, I think he's given up a lot to defend Trump. And, and I, and I do think that he is, he, he's susceptible to Trump's lies. I, I'm sure he's being promised a lot of wonderful things and a lot of money. And I'm sure he believes that Trump, actually like pays his bills and follows through on these promises, which he will not. I am totally willing to concede that he doesn't know enough about the tax code to be the chairman of the ways he means, the ideal chairman of the ways he means committee. I put it to you, Ms. Stoddard, that he knows more about the tax code than he knows about being the CEO of a social <laughs> media company. Right. <laughs> and, um, so I mean, look, I, I think you're probably right. My prediction is is that he that Trump. My hunch is that Trump offered him like a million dollars a year to do this thing, told him it would be great. Devin is of a mind that thinks that when Trump tells him things, they are true. Oh yeah, it's strange. And and I could see both he and Kevin McCarthy, you know, walking into a room full of manure, saying, "Where's the pony?" At the end of this thing, and um. And it does not make me sad to predict that, you know, at this point. Oh, no. but. <laughs> we cannot muster any sympathy for either of them. Let's just talk over a second about Kamala Harris. Um, it is Kamala, right? Not Every time I, I settle on a pronunciation, 
someone tells me it's wrong? It's Kamala. Kamala. Okay. Kamala Harris. Because several people told me it's it's like Pamela with a K, and I just think that's wrong. But no, no, no. She 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 told us during the campaign that it's Kamala. Mm-hmm. Kamala. 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 That's helpful. But um, it's, but it took me a long time to say it, and sometimes I mess up because I keep thinking it's Kamala, not Kamala, like Pamela. Right. Kamala. Like I see the K A M A L A, and I think Kamala. Right. Right. But anyway. So, she is the vice president of the United States, and her name is Kamala. Um, um, I have this theory that I might be writing about. Um, sort of like this thing I've been talking about with, with the house becoming this performative platform where your social media stuff is more important than like writing bills. The weird thing about the vice presidency is that in some ways it's perfectly suited to that new age because there's just not a lot to do. Right. It, it's, it's weird. The whole position um, was kind of an afterthought for the founding fathers. And really, after they changed, the, they amended the Constitution so that they're both on the same ticket. Because right until what, 1800, 1802, whatever it was, the the vice president was the person who came in second, which was just I mean, I, I take a backseat to no one and saluting the wisdom of the fa- founders. But that was crazy. And um, um. But like, if you go through what her job description is, or the vice president's job description, it's like four things. And you get to preside over the Senate, but you don't you do that most of the time. And the few times you do it is when there's a tie. Um, there's certifying the electoral college votes. Sorry, Professor Eastman. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and there's, oh, there's this other thing about being alive in circumstances when the president is not. Right. And that's that's sort of it. And the problem for the for I think I think part of the problem that Kamala Harris has is that she got in there and her whole life is about being a symbolic politician. And the expectation from Biden was no, you you have you have things to do. And it turns out she doesn't know how to do to be the political operator that the vice presidency unofficially requires, you know, in the job description. And so she's just kind of lost. And, um, and the symbolism thing only takes you so far if you don't actually have any responsibilities to do, but she can't go off and be her own person without being disloyal to Biden. So she's just sort of trapped. Well, if you're really, if you're really skilled at this, like you said, if you have, if, if, if you're a good politician and you know how to do this, you know, you do what Mike Pence did. You, you build your own um, infrastructure and you do it nicely and diplomatically and it doesn't distract from the boss and you don't get in trouble. She, you know, years ago before the primary, one of the, the smartest Democratic mind in town, he told me Kamala Harris is a lawyer. She is going to be a disaster as a candidate. She's the sm- she's smarter than she even comes off as. She's really electric in a room. She's she's got all these talents, but she is a lawyer only. She is not a politician. Then we watch her in the primary and it turns out to be true she can't pick a position on healthcare. She clearly didn't care. Um the most important issue to the Democratic Party at least at that time. Um and then now we know, Jonah, that if 
if she wanted to dispel these rumors and fix the image of her that's in the news, she would be doing events on voting rights and the border, which are her assignments. She's clearly such a disaster that Joe Biden won't let her. (laughs) If if she could handle it, they would make moves on those things. We're going to do this on the border to make things better. And we're going to announce it and she's going to be there. Or we're going to do this on voting rights. She had a, a, a maternal morbidity event at the White House. She's trying to support, support him on Black women who want her to succeed. But when you see these stories that react to this idea that she can't step in in 2024 to be the heir to the presidency and would have all these you know, challenges and that she's not considered ready, they all say two things. Oh, her allies are upset and they want to help her. Well, she doesn't have any allies. She doesn't have any important allies. She came from nowhere and she doesn't have a political um, base behind her. She doesn't, she doesn't have political lineage. She's not best friends with some force like the Clintons or, you know, there's no one backing her up all the way down ticket. Um, And number two, the stories that came out were that she doesn't do the work, which is the worst thing that we could have read about her. Um, You know, maybe she, Maybe she's bitter because she got bad assignments. He gave her things that she couldn't succeed at. These are intractable problems, and it wasn't right to dump them on her. Well, then the stories come out from her staffers saying she doesn't read briefing books. So it, it's sort of as bad as it could be. And, and a lot of it is like, I'm sorry, that's a cell phone. I mean, she's her reputation is that she doesn't put in the work. And I worry, you know, I, I, at the time, I, 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 I sort of, when this, when this person was worrying to me about it, like, no, 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 no. She can't. She can't. She can't take off. She she won't take off. She's just a lawyer. And then when I saw when I saw her stumble in the primaries early, it was just obvious that somebody, you know, people told her, like, you're so fabulous. You're the attorney general of California. You have this boffo resume and you're like beautiful and and you're so smart and you're a black woman and like you need to run for president. And she just went for it. And now she is the vice president. And she can't um, do the job of the presidency. It's no one like, I mean, we would just, they would be out there trying to counter this narrative so hard if they could, and they're not doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, that's what it's sort of, it's sort of my point is that there's a certain kind of like expectation that she has that that, you know, and it's sort of like how she became vice president in the first place. She became vice president and, and like, I could see why if you didn't know the facts, you would think this sounds racist or sexist. But she was in fact picked because she was a black woman because Joe Biden said, no matter what, I'm going to pick a black woman. And, um, and the bench of people that were remotely qualified to be vice president was very small and Shame on America that there aren't more qualified black women waiting in the wings to be selected as the Democratic vice presidential nominee. But that was just the fact of the matter at the time. And um, there is this, this weird sort of, um, you know, people of earth, stop your bickering. I'm Kamala Harris and I'm here to help kind of thing about her where she just thinks that like simply by virtue of being her, everyone is supposed to like her. And I think that one of the big tells is that that nervous laugh that she has 
where whenever she gets into, I mean, it's like she'd be the best poker player to play against ever because it's like every time she drew the wrong card, she'd laugh at it. You know, she like she she gives up on herself that like she's saying I'm about to say something that's a non sequitur or that's bad politics or that's self indulgent, and then she laughs at it, thinking that takes the edge off of it, and no one else laughs because it's not funny. And um, I just don't know. I mean, like. I just think it's very funny that she's much more of a Veep character than a West Wing character. And the solution from a lot of Democrats is this West Wing scenario of put her on the Supreme Court, um, which is just fantasy land stuff. Um, so I just, I mean, like, what is your prediction? Year three, is it just, is she just permanently sidelined and, you know, is forgotten about? Or does she rehabilitate herself? I mean, it just, I, we've never been in a situation where where vice president is, I mean, even Dan Quayle didn't have this level of problems because um, he did do his homework. He was just he was just bad on camera, came across weird, um, but he had smart people around him, and and he and he was a nice guy. You know, when you're in a bad political place, and you're apparently a really mean, crappy boss, um, you have additional problems because you just don't have people fighting for you out of conviction. And so I just don't know how it plays out. Yeah, so I don't, I mean, the, the, back to the selection of Kamala Harris, she, I mean, there were other black women, but they had, pro, I mean. They had problems she, too, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm not saying she was she the only black no woman. Candidate. Yeah. Susan Rice had a problem. She had a back, she had baggage. Yeah. From Benghazi. I mean, Condi Rice would have been a genius pick. If Condi Rice was willing to, to run with Joe Biden, she would have been a genius pick. But that wasn't good enough for the Democratic Party because she's a Republican. So she wasn't a good enough black woman. So there was like, to me, Val Demings, you know, police chief in Orlando, the murder capital of the world. Like, I think that would have been pretty cool. Donald Trump didn't have any freaking experience to be president more than Val Demings did. None. So... You know, he could have tried that, but she was the do no harm candidate. She was the safest. And so you do that, but you know that she's really not probably, you know, going to be great, but maybe you hope she'll change and you give her these weekly meetings and you try to bring her up to speed. But, but they're not, when you say, what's your prediction? Like, I have no idea because they're not trying to rehabilitate her. So it seems so strange that like they've given up on her. And so maybe they're waiting for some black swan event to intervene. I mean, I don't know, you know, but she doesn't, like what I said before, she doesn't have allies, meaning she doesn't have allies of any weight. She doesn't have a rabbi. She's not the Cuomo family. Like she comes from nothing from California. It's not a swing state. She doesn't have any big backers in the party, big gray beards who have like groomed her and think she's going to, you know, and, and believe in her and back her and mean. I don't. I don't think there's anyone putting the boot on the neck of the administration, saying like, "We're going to rescue Kamala Harris and or Kamala Harris, and and this is unfair what you've done." I mean, she, her allies are not important enough. You know, Chris Dodd did the vetting on the selection committee for VP, and he was really turned off by what she did to Joe Biden in the debate. And I spoke to someone. You know, I have a relative who was just absolutely crushed by what she did in the debate. And I was so surprised by that reaction. I thought she kind of stumbled and it was kind of, you know, it was so sneaky and she had the t-shirts ready. 
And, you know, they pounced and it was like this whole planned thing. And they crapped all over Joe Biden and insinuated he was a racist. And, you know, and the busing question, it was all so ham handed. And but I mean, I heard from someone a few days later in my family who was like, this was this felt like the way you know, Donald Trump insulting John McCain. After all Joe Biden has done for this country and for race relations, you know, for her to do that to him. I mean, she has burned bridges and she doesn't have a lot of allies. And I don't know if she thought about that going in or Joe Biden thought about that going in, but but it's they didn't they have not done the necessary shoring up to to make the public believe in her. Her ratings are worse than Biden's. So let me let me going back to this um, you know, my point about how it seems obvious to me that it would be in Biden's interest to do sister soldier stuff, right? Pick some fights with the progressive left, signal to independents and the kind of, and, and the large number of swingy voters who voted against Donald Trump, but not for Joe Biden, you know, which were his core. I mean, like, um, you said earlier that, you know, if, if she were smart, she'd be off doing voting rights events and, and, and border stuff and all that kind of stuff. What is the, what is the argument against her? I mean, it's, it's funny. There's an irony because one of the right-wing critiques of her, based on social media, you know, comfortably smug and those guys, they all, all, the, all these memes about it. Kamala's a cop, right? Because she was a really tough prosecutor and went for all that kind of stuff. And it was, the idea was to sort of tweak liberals in, amidst all of the George Floyd protests and the, the, the defund the police talk to say, she's not one of you. She's actually a, a law and order type. What's the argument against her actually leaning into that a little bit? You know, crime is a problem. It's one of those things like inflation. You, you can't ask voters not to believe their lying eyes, you know, when murder rates are, you know, doubling in various places and whatnot. Why not actually be, try to get to Joe Biden's right? And do and, and be the voice for really being tough on the border. I mean, I understand it would lose her some people in the Democratic Party, but she has, as you say, she has no base. And the signal—it's sort of like the Ricky Ray Rector thing with Bill Clinton, where he took time off of the campaign to execute him, and it was a fairly grotesque political act because this guy was like, you know, had the—he basically lobotomized himself trying to commit suicide and or something like that, and was not fit to be executed, but he wanted to, but Clinton wanted to send a signal that he'd be tough on crime and blah, 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 blah. You can think that was horrible when evil or, or, or not. My point is, is that it, it sent a cultural message that said Bill Clinton, it sent a message even to Democrats that this guy was going to be serious and do whatever it took to win. And if Kamala started being the sort of right wing for the Democrats speaking, sort of voice on these kinds of issues, um, I think it'd be, I mean, she may not be persuasive on it, but it would be a way to signal to people that she actually has a killer instinct in politics and it would actually feed to the median voters rather than the base voters. And Biden's problem is he's too much pandering to the base voters already. I completely, I completely agree with you. The problem is she doesn't have killer political instincts and she, um, is doesn't she doesn't want to get sideways with black people who she believes would punish her for her prosecutorial past, as some tried to do in the primaries. Um, if she thinks that she can still run and, and, and have a chance in 2024, which I think that she does, and she wants you know 
Pete Buttigieg to, to have a liability with black voters. And, and she wants to you know, make sure that she shores that up. And she's probably thinking, I'll never talk about that record again. Um, it would, of course, be the smart move. Uh, and they should do it. Um, they, they should, they, uh, you know, starting with the, with the, I mean, Joe Biden has said in the past, we don't want to defund the police. Why hasn't he said it recently? You know, this is, you, people are watching, it's, it's holiday season and people are watching these horrible smash and grab, you know, burglaries on YouTube or whatever and the news. And, and it's, um, it's, it's just nonsensical. The only thing I've kind of changed my mind since we last spoke, which is that I feel that because there's a sense that Joe Biden is going out to pastor the people around him who are Joe Biden Democrats are afraid that they will be put out to pasture. And so they're, they're blowing too many kisses to the left wing because they're afraid of the influence they will have in the party and they're afraid they won't get jobs. Um, and so that is a, that's the problem with this like um, sister soldier moment that we always talk about, about, you know, that he keeps resisting. Why is he resisting that? When Joe Biden is this bridge, right? He's the, he's, He's supposed to save the Democratic Party from being in the permanent majority because they have all these disadvantages in the Electoral College and the Senate. And because, you know, Republicans have rigged these state legislature, you know, in the state legislatures, these voting laws so that they can, you know, eject nonpartisan election officials and start literally throwing out baskets of votes and rig the next election. And 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 what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Joe Biden is, is supposed to be the one to save the Democratic Party. And the way he would do it is exactly how you just described, to come back and tell those voters in the middle, like, hey, <laughs> you know, I gave you this infrastructure bill with 19 Senate Republicans. Like, I've tried to do the best to get out of the hole in the pandemic. I thought you wanted to leave Afghanistan. I know crime is, is, is on the rise. I know gas prices are too high. I know the border is chaotic. We're going to take care of this. My main focus is COVID, but like, you know, and push back. But he hasn't done it. And I, I really think that th- that what happened is they got in there and they kept the progressives quiet for about eight months. And I think they did a good job of it. And then they, they this fight over the BBB, BIF, you know, this, which bill was held hostage by the other, started up and they wanted to give symbolic victories to the progressives, even though they knew they could never give real ones to them. Because Joe Manchin has always been in charge. So they knew that they shouldn't tie the two bills together and they knew they shouldn't roll Nancy Pelosi and all this stuff, but they did it anyway to give symbolic victories to Pramila Jaipal and make her feel good and let her be on TV for six weeks straight talking about the high level hostage negotiations and let them fundraise and let them, you know, squiggle around and feel really good on Twitter and let them have a symbolic victory and pretend like they were really gaining traction when they were always going to pass the infrastructure bill and they were never going to tank it. And everyone knew that from the start and everyone knew the social welfare program is going to be determined by Joe Manchin if it ever passes. And so they were going to be symbolic victories, but they decided that at the cost of losing all these voters that gave them the presidency, they would do that because they're afraid, because they're afraid of their careers in the future. That's what I'm convinced happened. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me that, that that there is this collective action problem in both parties where, where smart people know what the smart thing to do is. 
but their own personal interest is not aligned with what the smart thing to do is. <laughs> and um, it's just such a hot, hot mess. And, and the problem is in a, in a two-party system that the one of these two parties is going to be in charge, right? I mean, at, at least of the presidency. And, um, and it's, it's hard for me. I mean, I, I would be, given my conservatism and all that, I'd be very happy for a long period of gridlock. We've spent a lot of money. Um, I would like gridlock on a, on a better fiscal path, but whatever, right? Like gridlock is preferable to indulging either base of either party on a lot of issues. And I don't, I just don't see how you get out of it. I mean, at least Donald Trump will die someday. And the, but the institutional hold that the progressives have on the Democratic Party seems like it's going to have a much longer half-life than, you know, than Donald Trump. And it's very hard to see how they pull out of it and, I don't know. I, mean, I guess we should just close on that question. It's like, if the Democratic still, Party still goes the way it's going, do you think Donald Trump will be the nominee? And do you think he gets elected? Okay, so I think that, you know, Don, the, the nomination is Donald Trump's for the taking today. You know, many things could happen. I don't think any indictments hinder his path to the nomination. Maybe his health does. You know, we don't know. Um, I do think that um, the one thing that is sort of a, an interesting question mark is the one six committee stuff. I think they're going to bite very hard. And I mean, the committee is, and I think that they, they understand it's going to be dissolved next January, next December, January, when the Republicans take over, they're working as fast as they can. They're getting a lot of cooperation from the right people and they don't need Steve Bannon and they don't need Jeff Clark. Um, and they don't need Roger Stone. So, the the idea that the idea that Republican candidates will have to defend those findings next fall will be tough. They will still take the House because they simply have the map on their side. Maybe they won't get a fifty feet a fifty seat sweep. Maybe that, but the one six committee stuff is going to be really interesting in terms of what it does to big lie Republicans because you're a big lie Republican or you're not. And it's going to be very hard for people in 2023 to, to try to like fudge it the way Glenn Youngkin was able to. It's just not going to be that easy. And so I think that is the question mark for me on, on what's going to happen to the party. I think they take control of the House. I think they probably take control of the Senate. But what happens in 23 and 24 um, in terms of, you know, I think there's going to be political violence in January of 2025. It will come from the right or the left, but it'll come. And so as we move into this next chapter, this new reality, um, it, that's going to be interesting in terms of what it does to, to the Republicans. But if it were today, there's no question. No one, no one would dare. I mean, they'll all, you know, Pompeo and Pence and Hawley, they'll all start their packs. They'll run around, help down ballot. They'll do what they can to amass something in case he literally, you know, just doesn't make it or whatever. You got to be there, right? You got to be in the race and you try to be friendly and Trump Jr. and whatever. But like, but I think that if he's alive and well, um, you know, if the way it is now, he would take it. I just think that's the X factor is like, what will we learn that Republicans will have to swallow? 
And how will that, how will that depress the vote for them? And what will it do to the 2024 race? So the worrisome, well, there are many worrisome things there. Um, uh, one of the worrisome things is, is that the one six, your argument with one six, which I think you're probably right about. Um, it means that the, the net, the, 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 the net Republican caucus will be much Trumpier than it otherwise would be, right? Because the Glenn Youngkin ones are the ones who are going to pay a price for the January 6th stuff. The, you know, Louis Gohmert's getting reelected no matter what the January 6th committee finds. And, and so you have um, a Congress, you have a Republican caucus that is institutionally incentivized to amp up the crazy stuff. And, um, and that sets you up for just a terrible presidential election um, because you don't have voices of moderation of any prominence pulling you back. And that's why we can't have nice things. I mean, I, I'm trying to figure out a way to make like a rosy thing to end this thing on. How's your dog? <laughs> <laughs> I know it, it's hard. I mean, it, it really is. We're, we're really we're headed towards a very strange period. Uh, we, we truly are. Um, and I just, and back to the politically addicted versus the rest of the, the masses being tuned out to this stuff and, and, and God bless them for tuning out. I, I you know, I totally, yeah, blame them. I, I don't, right. I don't know that they have any idea this is going on and I don't know when they will begin to get a partial idea about what, and how they'll feel about it. But I just think like, again, it's worth pointing out that it's not really going to be fun after you get through your crazy Trumpy primary to face those questions if they're really tough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the best example of this is that we had an item in the morning dispatch about this today or yesterday that bizarrely, neither party feels much interest in doing what actually needs to be done, which is modernizing the Electoral Count Act of 1870, whatever. Um, because the Democrats are stuck on this path. They have this path dependence about talking about voting rights problems that whether you agree with their problems or not, they're not the problems that we're facing in particular right now, right? I mean, the problems we're talking about, the things that really threaten democracy isn't the voter suppression stuff that they were talking about in 2018. The stuff that's really threatening democracy is rigging these these election boards rigging the secretaries of state, you know, and yeah, the way I put it is, is it for like the person who's not following this closely is the Democrats are focus, focused on vote casting. <clears throat> and the concern is the vote counting, right? right. The vote counting is at risk and that imperils the entire constitutional order. Right. The vote casting can be over. You can educate, register and mobilize. And, and you can get them to the polls and you can overcome stuff like that with turnout. You can't once you have people, you know, in a position to just throw out batches of votes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, uh, um, it's always darkest before the beautiful dawn, Jonah. Um, yeah. Was it McCann used to say it's always darkest before it's pitch black? Um <laughs> So anyway, uh, my wife is texting me saying that the dogs need the car back. So I have to head back 
And um, this is how all podcasts end. Exactly. <laughs> so thank you so much for doing this. And um, to be with you as always. And we will, of course, invite you back in due course. So again, AB's I'm daughter. I'm the gold lame jacket any year now. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you, AB. Okay, so normally I would say AB has left the studio, but in fact, I left the parking lot. Um, I'm recording this about 20 minutes after our conversation um, because I had to get back and give my wife the car so she could take out the dogs. And um, and it took a while for my audio to upload because I was using my phone as a personal hotspot. None of this is interesting, by the way, save to say that uh, today has just been a comedy of hassles and, and technological problems. We didn't record the dispatch podcast because of at least in part, my Wi-Fi and tech problems, which I thought I had solved. And, um, I apologize for whatever role I played in that. Um, I feel guilty generally speaking about being on the road when I hadn't planned to, I feel good about helping my wife out, but I feel bad about, you know, giving short shrift to the company. Anyway, um, it's always great to have AB on. I know that was a downer of a podcast. I really was trying to figure out a way to get uplifting, but then I really had a heart out and had to get out. And I, I, I love AB so much. She's one of my favorite people. And, um, and um, I thought it was a really interesting conversation, even if there wasn't um, um, a lot of uplift to it. Uh, I do think this this it's weird it's like um it's symmetrical asymmetry in the sense that both parties are married to um dysfunctional incentive structures um but in just different ways and i think there's a lot more to be said about all that and fortunately i don't lack for opportunities to say more things so uh thanks again for for tuning in um, thanks for everybody in the replies who got my back on the whole Battlestar Galactica debate with with Michael Strain. Mike's a great guy, but you know his his wrongness is fairly profound. And um, the next, well, I don't know about the solo remnant. Who knows where I'll record that or how? But um, starting next week, I will be back home, and hopefully things will be a little more normal. We got a bunch of great podcasts planned, and. Um, Please, if you can, give us some good reviews. I don't do that spiel too often anymore. Um, it is what it is. Um, but, you know, if you if you want to help this podcast out, recommending it to people on Twitter or Facebook or in your daily life, that would be awesome. Um, it does help. You know, the the given the business model that we've got, uh, you know, SEO, at least for the for the present moment, is not really our friend the way we do things um but we think that creates a superior product in a lot of ways so the thing that we really count on are the salesmen who are um our listeners and our readers and so if you can spread the word uh that would be awesome and i'd really appreciate it and i am very tired now so i'm going to stop speaking so thanks again to everybody particularly ab who put up with some technical issues um and having to look at a weirdly bearded dude in the front seat of a car um, for an hour. And uh, thanks again to all of you. And I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.